Ba 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 ba. Welcome to Buddy Call. Okay, no, hi. Whoa, hello, uh, probably copyrighted. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hush. <laughs> no, it's a totally like original thing. I just invented now. Um, a one and a two and a hello. Welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAP support of you podcast. Except this time, when we're doing a Buddy Call episode, each week we're gonna bring on a different buddy, and and they're gonna tell you about their specialty and how they handle it on call. This episode, we're bringing on, you may know him, you may love him, our very own Andrew Pau, who's going to be a glaucoma fellow at the Wilmer Institute at Johns Hopkins University in Maryland. Although I am not yet one at time of recording, so this is a low-budget episode, admittedly. Editor's note, Andrew's now a glaucoma fellow and is not making any changes to this episode. And he's going to talk to us about glaucoma on call. Thanks for being on the show, Andrew. Yeah, okay. I, was, I was told not to do that anymore. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for coming on the show, Andrew. It's so nice of you to give yeah, us some up. of your... Shut up, ben. Okay, cool. So, okay. So, I will be your... Um, the you know, sole only hosts for this. Yeah, apparently. exactly. Exactly. So, when do I worry about glaucoma on call, Andrew? You know, like the other day, I got this call about this patient and it was for like vision loss or something. Who cares? But they had glaucoma. And when I did their pressure, their pressure was 23. Were you worried? Should I have been? Hmm, sure. So, let's talk about the normal values of an intraocular pressure and the context that you're seeing it in. So as a first-year resident, seeing people in the emergency room, what you aren't going to be seeing a lot of are your chronic open-angle glaucoma patients. Even if you do see them, you can tell them, thank you for coming. Please go follow up with your outpatient. Take a sticker along the way. The reason is you don't really care as an emergency triage about pressures that are even as high as the 20s or so, because what Ben's alluding to is what we've heard pretty commonly and a lot of people say, this is just sort of a rough sketch, but there are some tiers of pressure that will cause you rising concern. Let's start with what you know is the normal range. Anything generally from 10 to say 22 is commonly accepted, although that 22, kind of a soft no, not agreed upon hard limit. The next range, anything from the 20s to 30s, you know, if you have a problem with that, you'd certainly an ocular hypertensive, but you could tolerate it. You might be talking about slow vision loss over decades. If your pressures aren't set in the 30s to 40s, then you're talking about pressure vision damage uh, somewhere in like the months or so. If your pressures are in the 40s to 50s, just consider it, you know, weeks to months left that you've got. And then if it's anything above 50, you really have days before you need to mobilize before that patient loses vision permanently. These are not really hard and fast uh, rules, of course, but they're just guidelines. So, no, Ben, you shouldn't panic too much about pressure of 24 in your emergency room. Yeah, I don't know how you feel about this, Andrew, but I try to have a rule that I try not to let a patient walk away with a pressure over 35, especially if I'm not 100% sure they're going to make their follow-up within a week that I want them to. So if the pressure is above 35, for me, I tend to give them something to make sure that their pressure is low enough that I feel comfortable letting them walk out, at least for until their follow-up period. I generally would agree with that, although, of course, if the pressure was 60 to start with and the best I could do after all my eye drops and interventions was still 35, you know, I might take it. You want to bring it down, but your goal doesn't have to be 12, we'll just yeah, say. Right. Yeah. 
One more thing to maybe modulate this is if someone has very severe glaucoma, your threshold should be much lower. The way I think about it is the optic nerve, you know, it's a bunch of fibers. So I think about it as like a bunch of twigs. If you have a lot of twigs, it's really hard to break them, you know, with a, you know, even if you're a pretty strong person. But if you only have a few twigs, it's really easy to break them. So if they have few twigs, I have severe glaucoma and all of your thresholds should be modulated appropriately. So if they have like, they're, they're completely cupped out and only have a little bit of vision left, then your pressure threshold should be much different than the 40s that we're talking about here. Sorry, all I can think of right now are like team building slogans. Together we are strong. Together our optic nerve does not poop out. Okay. We do not snuff out the optic nerve when we are a team. <laughs> Hashtag team off though. So there's actually, we're talking, we won't get too much into different etiologies, different mechanisms of all the different flavors of a glaucoma out there, but it will be important for you to talk about with your seniors on call because, you know, a uveitic glaucoma should be dealt with very differently than an angle closure glaucoma. Likewise, a neovascular glaucoma in a diabetic is very different still, but that's for your senior to come in and take a look at the eye with you and say, okay, it's one or the other. Let's go back and just talk about some basic anatomy of this aqueous humor that is usually the, the contributor to deranged intraocular pressure. The aqueous humor just starts in the ciliary body where it's produced. Then it has to migrate, be, like kind of thread the needle between the lens and the iris, which is pretty narrow, honestly. And if that gets obstructed, then you have something called pupillary block. Once it's made it past that, then it's into the anterior chamber where convection currents kind of make it kind of swirl around in this top to bottom, bottom to top way. And then eventually it'll drain out into the angle through the trabecular meshwork. Microscopically, it goes into, it doesn't always actually go through the trabecular meshwork. That's just called the conventional pathway. There's something else called the uveoscleral pathway or the unconventional pathway. Through the trabecular meshwork, the conventional one, root number one, your a your aqueous humor would first go through the TM, then it'd go through Schlem's canal, go through the collector channels, and then finally into the episcleral veins. Whereas in the unconventional pathway, it just goes through this uveoscleral route, which we won't go into either. Ben, where do you where do you think we should go from here? Yeah, so I think we can talk about exam. Exam and glaucoma is very simple. Just use your tono pen. That's all you really have okay, to do. Okay, I am going to kick you off a cliff. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what else did you do? What else is there to even bother with, Andrew, besides a tonal pen? All right, all right. So your slit lamp and gonioscopy are really important when you're trying to figure out what kind of glaucoma this is. But what you basically want to rule out is with both slit lamp and gonioscopy, is this from an anatomic problem where things are just pushed too close together? In which case, maybe a laser procedure could help me re-equilibrate things. Or is this an inflammatory problem, in which case you don't want to touch it with a laser period? Or is it even potentially something where there's inappropriate neovascularization? There's other things, but those are your most common, probably major three that you can't miss and don't want to miss that actually dictate how you manage things. If one of the things you want to find out then is how deep is the anterior chamber, whether it's shallow, maybe the angle is narrow, or if it's deep and you're dealing with an open angle etiology, then your slit lamp exam can kind of clue you into it using a shortcut called the von Herrick sign. That's where you make your slit beam really narrow, you tilt it on its side, and you approach the peripheral cornea, and you try to see 
well, you know, the width of your slit beam is how wide the cornea is, how, how deep and thick the cornea is. Consider that one unit of corneal thickness and then compare how many units of corneal thicknesses that is between the iris and the endothelium, corneal endothelium. Von Herrick is a good shortcut, but it should never be used alone. Even the proponents of Von Herrick will tell you that. To really know yes or no, you need to do gonioscopy. So consider the Von Herrick like a not very sensitive but specific test where if it looks narrow you gotta check it out for sure and if it isn't doesn't look too narrow but you should still check so on gonioscopy we're not going to talk about how to do gonioscopy if you want to learn the specifics of gonioscopy you should really check out uh, dr lee allward at the university of iowa has a really excellent resource gonioscopy.org which has videos even some lectures great pictures and descriptions of how to do a gonioscopy. There's also three different grading systems for gonio. We're not going to get into that. Again, this is for basics for now. But in general, what you want to do with gonio is figure out is the angle wide open, in which case you're dealing with an open angle problem, or is it too open, in which case maybe they got punched or slingshotted in the eye a long time ago and you're dealing with an angle recession problem. Maybe the angle is just way too closed. Maybe it's got neovascularization from a diabetic. Maybe it's got peripheral anterior synechia from a uveitic, in which case that also dictates your management. And maybe it's heavily pigmented, like in pigment dispersion, or there's just weird structural placements, like the where structures are are just abnormal, like in the ice syndromes, which are pretty rare, so don't worry about them for now. Again, this isn't a gonio lecture. I agree, gonioscopy.org is amazing. For a glaucoma simpleton like I, what may be helpful initially is you're really just looking for two lines with a white line between them. Oh my god. If you can see <laughs> two lines and a white line between them, they're probably pretty open. If you can see, you know, or if you can just see one line and a white line under that, then that's probably pretty open. If you only see a, one line, then like, oh, they're getting there. And if you don't see any of that, that's no good. And that's how Benjamin Young got named in many lawsuits. That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> But sir, I saw two lines. <laughs> but whatever. Okay, I won't, I won't, I won't throw it. It's too much. Yeah, okay. Okay, okay. So, Andrew, you know, we've tried to do some diagnostic, but urgently, how do we get that intraocular pressure down? How do I make the tone of pen happy? Okay. Say so you've called me, you've regressed back to first year, and you've called me for an intraocular pressure that's too high. I will. I still will. I swear <laughs> to God, I'll do it. I will. The first thing I will ask you is, have you started the... IOP lowering drops yet. And if you haven't, I'll say put them in. Now, this is kind of the weird thing. We give out things like uh, bromonidine three times a day, certainly Timolol just once a day. Once a day should work, and that should be the full efficacy for those eye drops. But if you're in a pickle like this, then you'll just want to keep dosing them. And that's totally fine. So put in one round of your three different categories of intraocular pressure drops that will actually matter. There is Which, a fourth category that's not going to do anything, no matter how long you stay there in the emergency room for. Ben, what's that category? Uh, prostaglandin analogs, your latanoprost. Yeah, so don't bother. You can try if you want to, but it's not going to do anything because that category takes at least a couple of weeks before they actually rev up and do something. Yeah. Unless your patient has already been on them, in which case, yeah, sure, throw them on. And um, also remember, don't put multiple drops because latanoprost paradoxically loses efficacy if you put it in more than once a day. So don't forget that. So let's go in this from uh, order of most efficacious to least. 
So again, your prostaglandins are usually the most effective, but they're not going to make a difference in this case, so ignore them. The next best thing and the next the one that gets compared on every new drug trial is Timolol. Your beta blockers like Timolol, but these ones they're easy to find contraindications for. If say the person with high pressure is this COPD or or somebody with like a lot of lung problems, you don't want to put in a beta blocker no matter how much you might try to prevent it from getting into the systemic circulation. Then you're left with alpha agonists like bromonidine. That's the next best acting category. You can do them, but remember they can cause a lot of people some allergies, which honestly is probably not your major concern in an acute setting. But what is, is a kid. Don't give bromonidine or alpha agonists to somebody who's pediatric age because it can actually cause CNS depression. You'll see different age cutoffs and things like the Will's Eye Manual. Some people go by age, some people go by weight, but like really, really think about it if you're doing bromonidine in a pediatric patient. Yeah. Okay. And then the last category that's going to do anything are your carbonic anhydrase inhibitor drops. Honestly, it's not like you're going to be titrating your drops as in, I'm going to try Timolol first, and then I'm going to try bromonidine, and then finally, if neither of those work, I'll try uh, dorzolamide. No, you just got to put them all at the same time, so honestly, it doesn't matter. There are very few contraindications to the eyedrop formulations of the carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, but we'll talk about that a little bit more when we talk about oral agents that you might be forced to go to. So to review, prostaglandin analogs like latanoprost are effective, but way too slow acting for the acute setting we're talking about. Beta blockers avoid in heart or lung patients, put it very broadly. Bromonidine avoid in the very young. Look up your local age and weight cutoffs. Carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, and let's save a sulfology you can probably use. So the next thing is, uh, again, this is one thing that emergency room doctors may come to you going, hey, there's a paper in our ER literature saying that you should dilate this patient or you should like pharmacologically constrict this person's iris. Just don't do it. It's very controversial. Some texts recommend doing it one way or the other. You could listen to what we said about it in the, phaco- the uh, lenticular glaucoma episode. But let's just say don't worry about it. Talk to your glaucoma fellow or your seniors or your glaucoma attendings about it, and they'll probably just tell you, forget it, just move to a laser treatment. So then we'll talk about the oral agents, which are really mostly either acetazolamide or methazolamide. Also called diamox and neptazane, for those who've never heard it. These, in particular, acetazolamide is both oral and IV. They're really both carbonic anhydrase inhibitors that, because they're systemically administered, either orally or through intravenous access, they will work pretty darn well, no matter how much I kind of poo-poo the carbonic anhydrase inhibitor eye drops. But you do have to be very careful with them. Number one, they are both sulfa-derived, and if the sulfa eye drop wasn't going to do too much, the sulfa systemic meds certainly will. And you really want to be careful with it if you're giving it to somebody who not just has a sulfa allergy, but has sickle cell. Um, because the thought is that uh, sickle cell can get worse and precipitate a crisis if it's exposed to the metabolic acidosis that these medications generate. Now, you can think of methazolamide as the less bad version of acetazolamide. It doesn't, for whatever reason, cause as much metabolic acidosis. So you see people kind of going to it for if they have to rely on chronic therapy for longer. But in the emergency room, just go for 
acetazolamide once you make sure their kidneys are okay first. Right. Methazolamide is um, processed by the liver. So that's one reason you can use it in yeah. a kidney patient. Thanks. The bioavailability is pretty similar between oral and IV, but so you can give like 500 of acetazolamide is the same, either oral or IV. But uh, if that doesn't work and you still can't do some of the other stuff we're going to talk about, you might even be tempted to think about mannitol, which some people are used to using. But the last time I tried to convince an ER attending to let me give it, I got overruled by her and the pharmacy. So people are very ginger about mannitol because it has, can have dehydrating effects on the brain. So in general, even though it exists, even though some of your attendings may be comfortable using it, it's not likely to be one that you're going to be reaching for on call. Yeah, that's like super last ditch in our experience here. Yeah. Okay, so this is, real quick, we'll talk about laser treatments, what to do. And at this point, if you need a laser treatment to deal with your high IOP or emergency room patient, you've probably kicked this up to your senior by now or some such. Real quick, SLT for selective laser trabeculoplasty, you're never going to do as an emergent procedure because that's something that takes three months to work. Usually you do it to open angle patients anyway, and they're not the ones coming into you with their problem. So even though you've heard of SLT, good for you. Don't don't consider it for your emergency patients. What is your real mainstay for laser treatment in the emergency room is laser peripheral iridotomy. That's going to be for angle closure. Sometimes it's for other things too, although that's a little more controversial. And then what's also controversial is where you put the iridotomy, temporal or superior. And I don't think you take a department full of glaucoma attendings together and you'll be able to start the weekly argument, if you ask them this question. And then there's a couple other laser treatments, but maybe mainly iridotomy is your big thing to resolve, especially angle closure or pupillary block. Even more severe than that, or even more aggressive than that, would be advanced glaucoma surgery, like the traditional stuff, tubes or trabs, trabeculectomies. But that's certainly not your wheelhouse. Uh, up for discussion with your seniors, a glaucoma fellow, and usually these, even in an emergent situation don't have to be done or until like a few days later. So you're usually, if you're getting to this point, you're basically queuing it up for an outpatient follow-up and management. So that brings us to, you know, what back to what you can do. We've kind of gone past that a little bit just to give you the whole picture, but bringing it back to, you've tried all your eye drops. They're not working well enough. You've tried your oral agents and they, those aren't working either. And maybe you can't try a laser for some contraindication or something, or maybe they're like 12 years old and can't sit still for the laser. What are you supposed to do short of taking them to surgery? There is a temporizing measure, the anterior chamber tap, where you're basically trying to release fluid from the anterior chamber. Um, this can be diagnostic and therapeutic, especially in cases of inflammatory etiologies where you're actually trying to sample some of that aqueous and send it off to like PCR to see if there's a HSV or VZV particles in there. But you can actually do it just to lower the pressure. Now, you're going to get it, getting the gist here. I'm sure that lots of things in glaucoma are rather controversial and people don't agree. That's true of this as well, because let's see if Ben can remember some... Uh, some oh, no glaucoma fundamentals here or at least anatomy fundamentals the anterior chamber like what's the rate of aqueous fluid production ben it's about two to two and a half microliters a minute so okay what's the volume of the anterior chamber then 
It's about 200 or so uh, microliters. So if you drain the entire anterior chamber and flatten it, which you don't really want to do, but say you do, how long is it going to take before it just fills up again? You know, it takes roughly, you know, even taking into account the posterior chamber, it takes roughly like 100 minutes or so. So like one to two hours. So a lot of people ask when this gets brought up, why would you bother with an anterior chamber? Why would you bother with an anterior chamber tap when it's just going to fill back up again in two hours or so? Well, there are some answers to that. Number one, your eye drops may not even be getting into the eye. If the pressure is in the 50s or 60s, there's actually so much edema that the drops cannot actually get past all that swollen tissue and actually permeate into the eye. Swollen cornea. Yeah. With really high pressure, the cornea, which is supposed to be how the drops kind of get into the eye. So yeah. The, the the tap can actually be helpful in just lowering the pressure of the eye enough such that your your eye drops will actually have an effect. So as soon as you do an anterior chamber tap, you want to put in an antibiotic to cover your bases to make sure no germs get in through that channel you just created. But you also want to, very shortly thereafter, put in another round of all your IOP-lowering eye drops because that's going to be the best time and the best opportunity for them to actually have make a difference in the eye. They don't really permeate into the eye when the eye pressure's too high. Uh, so that's one argument for doing an anterior chamber tap. Some people even think that if you repeat a tap doing a couple of times, it'll actually flush out the anterior chamber of any junk or debris that might be in the trabecular meshwork. Um, that's, again, controversial. And then as far as how to do an anterior chamber ta- tap, I would say at least in Ben R residency, that is pretty commonly done by first year residents or at least later in the year for sure. Yeah, probably with supervision. For with, supervision. Who, with supervision. Yeah. For sure. And talk to your seniors too during that supervision about how to do it. At our residency, we advocate a jab technique as is described by Dr. Chris Tang. Yeah, uh, just some things to keep in mind. Like, you know, we, again, we won't, we don't want to prescribe what technique to use, but things to remember are you want to avoid really touching anything within the eye when you're doing it. So don't nick the iris. That actually can actually be very painful. I've seen it once. And don't nick the lens, especially if they're faking. That's like the most important thing. Don't nick the lens because then you'll cause a cataract and need to cause someone who may have not needed for decades and decades to get cataract surgery or even cause a lenticular glaucoma. So avoid the cornea, avoid the iris, avoid the uh, lens. And if you're inexperienced, we highly recommend using magnification like a slit lamp to do it. Andrew, thank you so much for taking us into how to handle glaucoma emergencies on call. Before we end this episode, like in all Buddy Call episodes, we wanted to ask you, because our junior residents are listening, why did you choose glaucoma? (laughs) It was certainly for the adoration and respect of my retina peers. That was exactly why I chose it. (laughs) No, um, I mean, with glaucoma, it's something that really chronically affects people for so long. And you've seen people with visual field tests all the time and they hate it. But they're actually, they go home and if they understand what's happening to them, they're really worried. So it's a disease that even if it's in its early stages, causes so much apprehension and fear and in its late stages you're out of luck you can't do anything and those patients not only do they have the visual problems but they have to deal with all the troubles and difficulties of blindness like anybody i wanted to do it for that reason because its severity can be so terrible 
but I actually have a lot of time before it becomes that bad in typical cases. I wanted to do it because I could do really cool anterior segment procedures. I like to think of it as sort of like the mechanical engineer of the eye, where the problems, the etiologies are actually caused by a lot of the times anatomic problems. You know, I looked at, did you know that the Academy website has a whole page on that's titled yellow white things on the retina? And I just was like, I cannot do that. I, I can barely draw stick figures, let alone identify and distinguish a yellow thing from a creamy yellow thing. So no, like maybe that's like, I don't know, a software engineer or something compared to a mechanical engineer. But this, the range of surgical options to us is so cool, especially with MIGs coming out now. But And you really get to know and get to support your patients with this chronic and debilitating eye condition. Can I ask when you decided on glaucoma? At what point in your training? You know, a lot of people um, tell you out there, don't talk about your personal or family histories of eye problems because, you know, there is some discrimination or people don't want it. You don't want to basically be weeded out just from like a family history of problems. But honestly, a lot of us know people with glaucoma. A lot of us have relatives with glaucoma. It is that common. And seeing that in my family from a young age at least made me realize, hey, this thing exists and look how much it affects people. I did, don't say I decided from that age that this was what I wanted to do, but it definitely spoke to me the most throughout residency, probably honestly because of my experience with it before. Thank you very much for sharing that. And, you know, honestly, I talked about this throughout my glaucoma fellowship interview trail, and I'm still going to fellowship. So just be honest, but don't overshare, I guess. That's very interesting. That's very good advice. Uh, I want to give a big, big thank you to our buddy this week, the Dr. Andrew Powell, who will be the, well, who by this release will be the, uh, one of two. One of two. Will be uh, one of the two glaucoma fellows at the Wilmer Eye Institute of Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. If you'd like to hear more, then you can follow us on Twitter at iSportYears with number four. And if uh, I guess I should do the whole because I'm the host and you're like, nah, you're, you're, work. Some, you're, some, you're some guests. Keep talking. Um, you can follow us on Instagram and find our website also at iSportYears.com or iSportYears uh, on the Instagram. If you'd like to support this series, which we're trying to launch and hopefully expand and improve on in later years or even this cycle, then giving us a rating review on iTunes is incredibly helpful. And that's it. Thank you, Andrew. We'll see you guys next week for our next Buddy Call episode. Bye. Bye.